This is the East Trauma Cast. With your moderators, Kevin Pei from the Yale School of Medicine, Dave Morris from Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah, Carrie Valdez from Covenant Hospital in Saginaw, Michigan, and Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program brought to you by the Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, Advancing Science, Fostering Relationships, and Building Careers. This is Carrie Valdez, your host of this edition of TraumaCast. This week, I had the opportunity to attend the 2017 Point Counterpoint Conference in Baltimore, Maryland. This is a very educational and entertaining conference, watching well-known trauma surgeons square off head-to-head on controversial topics in trauma and critical care. What follows for this TraumaCast is a series of interviews from the conference. I hope you enjoy listening. Let's go ahead and get started with my first interview with Dr. Scalia. It is my pleasure and privilege to stand here with Dr. Tom Scalia, who is the director of the Point Counterpoint Conference. Dr. Scalia, thank you very much for taking a few minutes with me. Happy to talk. Can you tell us a bit about the conference, perhaps some of the history, and then uh, where it is now and uh, the future of the conference? Sure. Point Counterpoint's been around for a long time. I remember going to my first one. It's got to be 30 years ago, maybe a little bit more even. I was in New York City. It was then the Atlantic uh, City Conference. I remember driving down to Atlantic City and uh, checking in Caesars. Room was pink and green. Had a mirror <laughs> on the ceiling. Uh, it was awesome. a great. It was a great meeting, and it evolved. It, it really started with Charlie Wolferth. Uh, got passed on to Kimball Mall, who was running it when I was there. It went to Philly for a year or so. Uh, it ultimately ended up with L.D. Britt running it. L.D. ran it for about eight years. And we had it uh, several places. The last year or two, last two, I guess, was in Baltimore. And last year, L.D. asked me if I would take it over, which I did with uh, great pleasure. The focus of the conference has really changed some over the years. Uh, LD was the person that brought it back to a real point-counterpoint format so that there was a topic, it got debated, and then uh, there was some resolution at the end, and we did that for with LD. It was two and a half days. Uh, I kept it in Baltimore for obvious reasons, <laughs> and we really tried to expand it this year. With LD, it was very much directed towards practicing surgeons, particularly community surgeons. And so it was about technical surgical topics. It was um, do this operation versus that operation, do this operation this way instead of that way, and then some more general topics. We tried to expand the groups of people to which it would be interesting. And so with the program committee, I sat down and tried to think of topics that were A, controversial, and B, relevant to advanced practice nurses, to community surgeons, to academic surgeons, to people at the early part of their career, to people at the late part of their career, to nurses, to everybody that really has a handle, because trauma and critical care 
quintessential team sports. And so we tried to, and I think the number of people in the room would suggest we were at least successful at expanding the subject matter to appeal to a wide range of people. Uh, first year was good, second year is going to be better, or at least that's my plan. And I would really encourage people to come out. It's um, You look at the people who are speaking, L.D. Britt and Phil Berry, that's about as lofty a discussion as you will get. Very different people, very different topics, but the ability in still a relatively small format, not tiny, but small, the ability to be able to speak with them, to talk to people like you know, Dr. Stein or Dr. Efron or Dave Livingston or Kim Davis and people who are, as Dr. Britt would say, household names in American drama care. Yes. You don't get to do that very often in, uh, in actually a somewhat informal way. Great. And for the uh, East members, our audience uh, typically is medical students, residents, mm -hmm. fellows, uh, junior attendings, the Young Surgeon Society, really. Um, when should they start considering attending a conference like this? I think they should come next year, every one of them. I, I think that this is a wonderful venue for all levels. We, we really tried to make it relevant over a wide range of experience levels. And I think we did that pretty well. Uh, topics like the aging surgeon, that cuts across all age groups. You start thinking about this stuff or some of the social aspects to injury care and prevention, all of the things that we discussed over the last several days, I think are ubiquitous or should be ubiquitous in their interest. The biggest problem that we encounter is time. You know, residents getting time off to come to a two-day conference, that's not that easy. Junior faculty members getting time off to come to a two-day conference, not that easy. Me getting two days off to come to a two-day conference, it's not that easy. And so I fully appreciate the um, the degree of difficulty of getting time off in a busy practice or just getting two days off. And so you got to pick your battles, you got to make your choices. I think this is a pretty good choice because I think that the amount you walk away with in two days of practical knowledge of of talking to people about things that you see every day is great. You go to a meeting like East, the AAST, or any of the professional societies, you get some different stuff out of it, but you know, some of the stuff is interesting to you, some of it you go, what does that mean? And I think if you consider the uh, return on your time investment, a conference like Point Counterpoint is a great investment because you really walk away smarter. I walk away smarter. And if I'm walking away smarter, probably the junior guys are going to walk <laughs> away smarter too. Couldn't have put it better. Thank you so much for spending some time with me. Happy to do it. 
I'm standing here with Dr. Megan Brenner, who just finished her point-counterpoint presentation, Reboa, the small catheter makes it an even better idea. And Dr. Brenner went up against Dr. David Livingston. He took the con, she took the pro. Dr. Brenner, thanks for talking with me today. Could you give us an update for our audience? Well, first, really, what is Reboa, and then what is all this noise about a smaller catheter? Sure. Uh, Reboa is resuscitative endovascular balloon occlusion of the aorta. Uh, this is essentially going through the femoral artery uh, up through the iliacs and into the aorta and inflating a balloon um, either at the level of the diaphragm or at the uh, just above the bifurcation, really for, for distinct purposes and hemorrhage below the, uh, the diaphragm. So uh, it has been really in existence since 1954 was the first published case report, but it's really taken several decades uh, of some advancements, uh, both in translational research uh, as well as uh, advancements in technology to allow us to bring this into the realm uh, of trauma, uh, where it is uh, becoming um, another skill set in our, in our toolbox today. So the smaller catheter, uh, the topic uh, probably came about since we've only had the new catheter on the market. It was FDA approved in October of 2015, and we've had it uh, in use at our center since February of 2016. So for a little, little over a year, we've been using it. And we've been doing Reboa for about four years. So this represents you know, a, a smaller minority of the time we've been using it, but we've definitely seen a huge increase uh, in use uh, compared to the old devices we were using, which were really made for vascular surgery to be performed uh, in procedures under fluoroscopy and direct visualization. So they had, you know, we had to use a long 260-centimeter guide wire, a huge 12-inch sheath, uh, and a long balloon catheter. So the smaller catheter uh, is a product of Pritime uh, Medical, and it was really uh, conceptualized uh, for the use of trauma and, and really to become a user-friendly device uh, to be placed at the bedside really by trauma surgeons since we are the ones uh, at the bedside when these patients come in. So uh, the new device is uh, fantastic uh, in terms of its uh, ability to reduce the steps to the procedure. No longer do we have a long, uh, stiff guide wire. Uh, it's a wire-free device, and it is FDA-approved to be uh, not just uh, used under, under uh, without imaging, but also FDA approved to be just a large vessel occlusive device, as well as just FDA approved to be an A-line monitor. There's a small port above uh, the actual balloon where we're able to transduce uh, arterial blood pressure, perform arterial blood pressure monitoring. Uh, which really gives it a unique feature, and especially in patients where access is difficult. You know, blood pressure monitoring really really helps uh, us determine, uh, you know, our, our strategies in terms of managing these, these exceptionally sick patients. So one of the old Reboa, we'll call it the bigger Reboa, one of the hesitancies for it to take place at uh, some of the smaller trauma centers is the vascular surgeon support that, that might not be available at the smaller centers. And managing the Reboa, managing the arterial injury um, and the complications afterwards, it's, it's a real problem. Uh, with the smaller catheter, are you finding that there are fewer complications and you maybe could do this at a center that doesn't have vascular staff available 24-7? So that's you know one of the things of course that we're looking at. Um, we've done um, you know if we look at our 50, our experience of 50 uh, Reboas <coughs> using a 12 French sheath, which was with the older device, and then our 35 uh, instances so far of using the smaller device through a 7 French sheath. Um, you know the number of, of complications is slightly smaller uh, with the catheter. Obviously, it is a smaller diameter 
uh, and does not uh, cause quite the amount of damage that 12 French does. But we really haven't seen a statistically significant difference in terms of overall complications. Of course, this could change as we get more numbers. But you know, we still have had to do a patch repair of a, of a, of a patient that had a 7 French sheath in. And I think the key isn't necessarily whether we have to do a patch or some sort of, some sort of repair. It's really recognizing that there is a complication and managing it absolutely when it occurs, or even prophylactically uh, getting on top of it. And that's where vascular surgeons can be collaborators and partners in this, is, is they really are the ones who can, uh, you know, give some expertise in terms of management of the patient with an indwelling sheath. So at this point, Robo is still made and intended for the trauma bay. We have not launched this out that we're going to start training the EMS providers um, or uh, out in the field, it'll still remain in the hospital. And then at this point, it, it generally is safer to make sure that there's a vascular surgeon who's evolved and available to, like you said, recognize complications. Would you agree? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, right now the new device, of course, has certainly promoted wider spread use, and technology is going to advance such that it will become an easier and easier procedure. Um, you know, no one owns the actual procedure, and only the company owns the device. So, you know, whose hands it gets into and how they decide how to use it, where to use it, um, you know, that's all things that we're going to be looking forward to uh, in, in the future. But I think, you know, obviously patient safety being the most important um, goal, uh, you know, so far I think we're, our, our data shows that we're, we're so far we're doing, we're doing okay. Great. Thank you very much. You're welcome. I'm standing here with Dr. Kim Davis, who has just finished doing her point-counterpoint on abdominal CAT scan. Is it needed for every seriously injured patient? Dr. Davis, if you could give us some highlights from your presentation. So the, the major point of my presentation was to use good clinical judgment to determine who requires cross-sectional imaging in the management of the trauma patient. I think that there are several populations that are too sick for CAT scan, including the hemodynamically unstable blunter penetrating trauma patient. I also think that a number of the penetrating trauma patients are best served in the operating room without a CAT scan that merely serves to confirm what you're going to find in the operating room. There are some segments of that population that may benefit from CT scanning, including the isolated gunshot wound to the right upper quadrant, which may be able to manage, be managed non-operatively, or in the patients where you suspect that it is not a transperitoneal penetration, but rather a tangential wound after gunshot. But for the most part, I think the penetrating trauma patients continue to be better served in the operating room than in the CAT scanner. What about the patient that we have uh, that you highlighted in your presentation who is a blunt trauma patient? They meet all the criteria to not get scanned. But you know you're looking at maybe a 10 to 20% missed injury rate. And I'm, I'm, in the or I'm in the emergency room, and I'm left with this decision of, do I scan this patient who I don't think has injury and they get to go home? Or do I admit this patient for overnight observation and serial abdominal exams, who we all know is likely going to get discharged tomorrow, but I can't safely do it tonight unless I get some imaging? I think that's a difficult patient population, and one that we're seeing increasingly frequently. I think it depends on the reliability of the patient, in that if you have an extremely reliable patient that you think will follow up, you may not want to, uh, to image that patient recognizing that 80% of the time they're going to have no injuries. The other population, however, is the population where they're not reliable, um, but they're better served at home than in the hospital, and I think that most trauma surgeons would image those patients, um, with the possible exception of 
the, the clinical gestalt that they really didn't have anything wrong with them. I mean, the person that falls off the bar stool and has a broken nose probably doesn't need a CT scan of the abdomen and pelvis, even if they're not a terribly reliable person. There's enough data to say that if you, don't, if you have normal liver function tests, if you don't have any blood in your urine, if you have no abdominal pain, you're awake and alert, you probably don't have an injury. But again, that miss rate's about 20-ish percent. And there is something to be said, and we don't use it as often enough, about doing the emergency department observation, giving them a set period of time, ambulating PO intake, and if they truly remain with a benign abdominal exam, it seems reasonable that they could go home without getting a CAT scan. Would you agree? I would. I think that observation period is probably about four hours, and I think that's generally how long it takes somebody to find family to come in, pick them up, and, and for the healthcare population to do the appropriate paperwork to get them out the door. I do think that we're over-imaging um, patients as a, as a general rule, and I, I apply this both to general surgery as well to, as to the trauma patient, and I think we're going to see a sharp uptick in malignancy um, with increased scanning over time. Thank you. You also had the opportunity to be a moderator for our first session. Uh, the session today was on TEG-based resuscitation versus one-to-one. The second session was operative fixation of rib fractures and does it improve outcomes. And the third session was on the Reboa and whether the smaller catheter makes it a better idea. I was wondering how your experience was as a moderator and if there's any highlights from those presentations you wanted to tell us about. Well, it's always interesting to moderate trauma surgeons um, and to keep them on time. It's a lot like herding cats. Um, I thought the TEG-based uh, discussion was interesting, particularly as it pertains to patients from rural environments in whom they've been injured for a period of time prior to presentation, and you have absolutely no idea what their underlying uh, coagulopathies may be. Um, but I, I also think that the argument to initiate one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one and then evaluate how you're doing with the TEG uh, maybe better than basing every decision regarding resuscitation on the results of the TAG. The operative fixation of rib fractures was fascinating to me because you had two people who clearly do rib fixation, both of whom said it wasn't about the cross-sectional imaging, it was about the physiology of the patient and whether or not you could not, you know, whether or not you could control their pain with adequate multimodal pain medication. Um, and Dr. Sarani was particularly vocal about using um, intravenous ketamine in conjunction with other multimodal pain medications in an effort to decrease the use of opioids in his patient population, which is something I have not thought about. Finally, the um, presentation on Reboa was hilarious because Dave Livingston is hilarious, um, but really focused on uh, the fact that the outcomes with Reboa are very similar to those with emergency department thoracotomy, and that the only difference appears to be um, in the profile of the incision made, not necessarily in, in truly impacting outcome. And with regards to the point-counterpoint conference, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paraphrase a quote from you from your presentation. You said, I have scoffed my entire career, and I'm then a pendulum. I'll scoff for a while at something that's new that comes out, and then the pendulum will swing, and I will fall in love with it. And I thought that was just such a great quote for what this entire conference is based around, is that we have these debatable issues, new topics, new ideas, and that it really helps us as surgeons have that debate in an oral format and, and perhaps change our practice. 
So I hearken back to when I was a resident when dinosaurs walked the earth, <laughs> um, and everybody got a diagnostic peritoneal lavage, and if they had a positive diagnostic peritoneal lavage, they went to the operating room, and if they had a splenic injury, we took the spleen out, and if they had a liver injury, we buzzed it. And then probably sometime around the end of my residency, beginning of my fellowship, when four-slice CT scanners became the norm, um, and we were able to get imaging in patients who were hemodynamically normal, we realized that we could actually manage splenic injuries non-operatively. So that at the end of my medical school, beginning of my residency career, to think that you could manage a splenic injury non-operatively was heresy. Similarly, people with blunt aortic injuries, who thought that we could manage a number of these patients with, with just uh, beta blockade and afterload reduction and get them through their injuries without taking, their, taking them to the operating room, opening up their chests, and putting in Dacron? And oh, by the way, who takes anybody to the operating room, opens up their chests, and putting, puts in Dacron now when you can place an endovascular stent? And, and at the initial uh, time when endovascular stenting was described, trauma surgeons uniformly scoffed at them. Hmm. So I think it, it becomes um, interesting to see how many of us think about disease processes and how we treat patients. The last comment that I'll make is the pendulum on fluid resuscitation is a clear um, representative example of this. For a while, you didn't want to give blood, you gave everybody crystalloid, everybody got abdominal compartment syndrome, everybody went into ARDS, and then we started to give more and more blood and limit, limit crystalloid, and now we're down to the one-to-one TEG-based discussions. Mm -hmm. But the incidence of post-traumatic ARDS is down. Abdominal compartment syndrome has effectively gone the way of the dodo bird for most patients. I mean, it's truly remarkable to see what has happened over a 20-ish year career, and I'm going to leave it at 20-ish because I don't want anybody <laughs> to know how old I am. <laughs> Great. Well, Dr. Davis, thank you so much for spending some time with me. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. I'm standing here with Dr. Britt, who just finished our Name Wolford lecture on uh, are we providing optimal care to our critically injured patients. Dr. Britt, thank you very much for standing with me today. Well, and having well thank you. It's good to be here, Dr. Valdez. So I think you, uh, your title of your presentation actually gives the question I'd like to ask. Do you feel right now we are providing optimal care? I think in some centers we are, but remember we have 315,000 citizens. Uh, we're not doing it in aggregate. There's too many deserts throughout the country where they don't have uh, acute care surgeons. They don't have a system. If I threw a dot, as, as Dr. Brent Eastman said in his scuttle oration, uh, you might hit an area of the country that doesn't have a system. Now, we're fortunate we're in Baltimore. I mean, they have one of the best systems in, in, in Maryland, but that's not the case across the country. And that's something that we have to fix. So to answer your question, in aggregate, we're not providing optimal care for our population. So one of the um, largest populations of the East members are going to be the young surgeons. So for those who are listening to this podcast, what would you suggest they can do if they want to get involved to they help address that? They have to get them? involved. Sir William also said that the greatest achievements, if you go historically, the greatest achievements are done between the ages of 25 and 45. So in all fairness, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm an old, old person. So if they want to obviously make a difference, have change, be an innovator, this is their time. So the, the fact that they're young, that, that's a good thing because we really need new ideas. I think sometimes we're using an old map to explore a new world. We need a Steve Jobs type person in healthcare. 
All right, a that's young fair. person, and so I'm telling them, I'm saying, we, you know, I'm on, I'm not in the clubhouse, but I'm on the back nine. They're on the front nine, and they need to obviously get involved. Well, your presentations are always inspirational. You became my mentor uh, at Eastern Virginia Medical School nine years ago, and, and just the, the impact and changes in surgical critical care, just in the time that I've been involved, has been pretty impressive. Um, going back to this conference, uh, this is one of the things I found most helpful as a young surgeon. I was wondering if you could highlight your role and experience with the Point-Counterpoint Conference, and then where you think the future of this conference will go. Well, let me first give it credit where credit is due. Uh, Charlie Wolf has started this decades ago, and then he passed the point counterpoint on to Kimball Moore, who then passed it on to me, and I just passed it on to Dr. Scalia. This is an important teaching mechanism, but it's even more important that the revenues go to the residents uh, for the paper competition. And so the urban proceed goes to the residents, the Committee on Trauma, the resident paper competition, and that obviously encourages them to get involved in academics and obviously advancing the science of our discipline. So it is pivotal. It is, it, is, it is an important course. It's one that I think will continue to go on. I'm not sure what's going to happen after Tom Scalia, but this is something that has been an integral part of the growth of the American College of Surgeons. Well, thank you very much. I certainly enjoyed the conference, and I appreciate you taking some time with me. Thank you. Excellent. Excellent. I'm standing here with Dr. Deb Stein, who just finished her point-counterpoint on ICP management hurts more than it helps in traumatic brain injury. Dr. Stein was the con for this argument against Dr. Adams, who is the pro. Dr. Stein, could you give us some highlights from your presentation? Well, first of all, I made a, Dr. Adams, uh, clearly he was wrong, so and I was right, so that's the first thing. No, I'm just kidding. Um, actually, it was a really great discussion. Um, Dr. Adams, who many of you know, um, obviously has a huge amount of expertise in this, and he and I kind of went back and forth on, is ICP monitoring um, really helpful in the management of traumatic brain injury? And I think we actually came to some really important consensus about that, that it really is about patient selection, not about about the monitor per se, that in some patients it clearly has some benefit, and in other patients it's not going to benefit. I think that we also agreed that both the Brain Trauma Foundation and the American College of Surgeons Committee on Trauma's recommendations are really based on not great data, but that unfortunately that seems to be a problem with many trials in traumatic brain injury, is that the data, we just don't do a good job designing studies or executing studies that demonstrate benefit of discrete uh, different interventions. You mentioned patient selection. Uh, could you help the audience understand, maybe in your practice, who do you think uh, benefits the most from intracranial pressure monitoring? I think it's really, um, you know, part of it is the patient's physiology. So what is their exam? So I think those people that come in who clearly have a devastating brain injury are unlikely to benefit. Those patients who come in with a relatively minimal injury with respect to neurologic dysfunction are going to do well no matter what you do. It's really those patients in the middle um, that are the ones that I think have the potential to benefit. There's also certain types of anatomy of brain injury that would be more likely to benefit, and those would be patients who are at higher risk of diffuse cerebral edema, um, patients specifically who have bad diffuse axonal injury, hemorrhagic contusions, as opposed to the patient who has an isolated subdural hematoma that gets evacuated, has little contusion underlying, and little evidence of cerebral edema. But again, it's really about the problem here is that we just don't know who the right patients are. And Dr. Stein's had a very busy morning. Uh, she actually started off as being a moderator uh, in three sessions today, targeted temperature management after a cardiac arrest doesn't improve outcomes. 
Uh, Tele-ICU, does this make sense? And ECMO saves lives in severe ARDS. Dr. Sine, could you highlight some of your favorite points uh, from the three sessions that you moderated? Yeah, I mean, they were they were all great sessions, great discussion, a lot of enthusiasm from the audience, which was really great to see. I think the first one on targeted temperature management after cardiac arrest, I think is a particular highlight. Um, you know, it's certainly one of, uh, it's certainly a hot button issue. We hear it talked about in all different types of forms. What do we do with these patients? Is it 32 degrees? Is it 36 degrees? And again, I think Dr. Tishman and Dr. Yellen did a really nice job about of kind of laying out what the data suggests and what the data currently says and I think we all agree that the issue here is not so much therapeutic hypothermia but the importance of temperature management meaning prevention of hyperthermia and prevention of fever following um, neurologic insults like cardiac arrest. It's also extrapolatable to a large number of other types of neurologic dysfunction, including traumatic brain injury, as well as stroke, as well as um, a variety of other um, fulminant hepatic failure, et cetera. And in your practice, you're the medical director of the Neurotrauma ICU at Shock Trauma. Uh, what does your uh, ICU do for temperature management? Uh, two questions. One is, do you have a, a number, a temperature that you are trying to keep your patients at? And then do you prophylactically try to prevent a fever, or do you wait for the fever and then start treatment? So I think if you're talking about patients with traumatic brain injury, our current algorithms are that we try to prevent fever from occurring, but I think in practice we actually react to fever. Our current pro uh, protocol calls for maintenance of temperature of 37.5. But if you take a kid who's otherwise doing well and has a good exam, that can be really hard to do to prevent them from being febrile. It's true after cardiac arrest, it's true in traumatic brain injury. And so if you're doing a lot of interventions to treat their fever empirically when they're otherwise doing well from a neurologic status, it's kind of, you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot. With respect to cardiac arrest, we our pr current protocol is 36 or 32 to 34. The problem is, as many of you know, is taking somebody and keeping them at 36 degrees oftentimes is much more difficult with respect to shivering and other interventions that are needed. Typically, once you get them down to 34 degrees, they stop shivering, they don't need paralytics, they don't need continuous infusions of anything. So post-cardiac arrest, we kind of shoot for 36, but if we find that we're having a hard time staying there, we'll go down to just 32 to 34, leave them there, and then actively manage their um, hyperthermia and not allow them to be hyperthermic for at least 72 hours following rewarming. Well, this has certainly been a data-packed morning, and I really appreciate you spending some time with us. My pleasure. I'm standing here with Dr. Elliot Hott, who just finished his point-counterpoint presentation. Uh, he took the pro side of the question, TEG-based resuscitation is better than one-to-one, -one, and he took on Len Jacobs for the con. Dr. Hott, thank you very much for talking to me today. Hi, how you doing? Could you give us some highlights and see if the debate has been settled? Should we be using TEG for our resuscitation, or should we just use a one-to-one -one standard? So unfortunately, nobody asked for a vote at the end. But um, I would definitively say that I clearly beat Dr. Jacobs. Uh, it's always a little daunting to uh, go up against someone like Dr. Jacobs. He's a founding member of EAST. He's been a past president of EAST. Um, so going up to, against someone like that is a tough, uh, a tough, component, uh, tough competitor. So, uh, but the good thing was all the data was on my side. Um, I have been a relatively late adopter of TEG. I'm not one of the early zealots uh, that jumped on the bandwagon very early, but I've seen more and more really strong data on the use of TEG-based resuscitation compared to a routine, standardized, one-to-one -one basis. Now, I will tell you that massive transfusion protocols absolutely work. Early resuscitation with plasma platelets is very different than when I was in training, and that has made a huge difference in hemorrhage control. 
but I think there is a better way to do it using tech. And there's a few studies I cited. There was a study out of Houston that showed that when they went from using tag-based resuscitation to the recommended one-to-one-to-one ratio-based only, outcomes actually got worse. So that compares tag versus not. And there's also a randomized clinical trial uh, run through Gene Moore's group that showed us that a tag-based resuscitation strategy has better outcomes. How many things do we do in trauma-critical care that are based on randomized clinical trials? So I would say, uh, although I'm a late adopter, I would definitely start using TEG more and more in my practice. Well, it certainly was a very data-packed presentation on, on both points. And you're right, taking on Dr. Jacobs as a, as a formidable challenger. I think you both did a nice job. Um, but I have to bring up that you have also argued the other side of this topic. So are you faking it one way or the other, or have you really become a TEG user? Um, so it is true. So last year, I actually debated my friend Brian Cotton um, on, a, on the topic, and I was on the other side. Um, and I had to say that TEG wasn't useful. And at the time, there were a few things that have come out since then that has changed my mind. Um, so the first thing is the data from the randomized trial. You know, randomized trials should change our practice more than, than anecdote, okay? So that's one piece of it. There's a new uh, Cochrane review that came out that looked at um, can TEG-based resuscitation help in bleeding patients? And the answer is yes, and I thought it, it asked a very good question and gave a very good answer. Um, I've also started using it a little bit more in my practice. In all reality, we do not use it routinely on every single trauma patient, but we do use it on a case-by-case basis in patients who are bleeding to help us guide the resuscitation. And as I've used it and as I've seen it be helpful, that's where I'm changing my mind. Um, and I think uh, as we get more people to buy into it and do more studies and get used to using it, I think it will help a lot of trauma patients. Pivoting to a, a bit of a different topic, I think it would be fair to say that you are one of the most visible uh, EAST members at all the conferences. Uh, you're very active uh, at the national level uh, in many societies. Could you give some highlights as to uh, how you feel the Point-Counterpoint Conference kind of fits into your realm of conferences? Who do you think this conference would be best geared towards? Um, and uh, maybe considering that our audience are uh, the East members, because we all only have so much time in the year to get to a conference. What makes this conference one that, that people should put at the top of their list? So I, will, I would never tell you to not come to the East conference. So that's my first <laughs> statement. I love the East meeting. I really try to go every single possible year. That being said, I've been coming to Point Counterpoint uh, you know, I went as a resident and I thought it was a great meeting. I've been coming now that it's been in Baltimore or Washington for basically almost a decade, and I think it is a great conference. It has this smaller feel where everyone's in the same room at the same time, and they really want audience participation. So you have the debate from the two speakers, and then there's a chunk of time where people go to the mic and ask their question. and. They mostly have a short 
to the point actual question to get a difference of opinion of two or three or if you you know if you include the moderator three people about what do you do in your practice what do you actually do in your day to day basis um, I was happy one of uh, a, a new East member who's one of my surgery residents at Johns Hopkins went up to the mic and asked a phenomenal question at this meeting it's a great place where anybody can come and do it so who should come to this meeting. I think this is a great meeting to come to for anyone who does trauma, critical care, emergency surgery, acute care surgery, whatever you want to call it, to come and hear these topics. You can get a chance to hear some great speakers, hear both sides of the, the uh, equation, and you get to go and meet people. Um, I think, especially if you can't make it to the East meeting because it's not your turn and your partners are going, this is a great other meeting to come to. Well, I, I have to say, I completely agree with what you've said. This is my first year out in training, and it's been two straight days of really interacting with experienced surgeons and talking about issues that come up all the time in the OR lounge, in the operating room, in the ICU, and managing it kind of in a nice, dedicated fashion has been fantastic. Thank you so much for spending some time with me. Thanks very much. I'm standing here with Dr. Len Jacobs, who was called earlier today the father of the Hartford Consensus and the creator of the Adam Course. He's also uh, the leader and creator of the Stop the Bleed campaign. Dr. Jacobs, thank you very much for taking a moment to speak with me. It's a pleasure. Uh, could you please explain to the audience, for anybody who hasn't been to a national meeting or who is brand new in training, either at medical school or residency, just what is the Stop the Bleed campaign? Well, you know, Stop the Bleed was really came to follow a number of really distressing things. One was Sandy Hook, the other was the Boston Marathon. And in both of these events, people bled to death from penetrating injuries, either from a gunshot wound or from an explosive event. We felt that we had to do better. We, the nation, had to do better. And a group was pulled together under the auspices of the American College of Surgeons to increase survival from any event which was causing massive bleeding. Immediately it became clear that this was not just a medical event, but a law enforcement event, a fire rescue event, an emergency medical services event, a pre-hospital and a hospital event. So the Hartford Consensus was a group of people who from, were each, from each one of those disciplines. Three things. First off, the police or law enforcement, their mission was to stop the perpetrator of the crime. That's it. So they would do that, but if you were bleeding, that was not part of their mission. So we were able to modify their mission to also include stopping bleeding. As soon as you do that, you have to train the people and then equip them. And we took a military model from that where every soldier that goes on the battlefield carries a kit and is trained to stop bleeding in the buddy type system. And in all honesty, law enforcement has really stepped up. It is now, they've modified their mission nationally that if, if somebody is bleeding, they will spin off somebody to help stop that bleeding. So that's the first. And they're usually first on scene. And the whole name of the game is to keep the blood inside the body. So that if it's coming out, the faster you can stop it from coming out, the better the patient's gonna be. The second was law enforcement generally speaking, kept emergency medical services on the periphery until the scene was safe. Mm -hmm, sure. And that took a long time, 10, 15, 20 minutes. In Columbine, it took 40 minutes. And during that period of time, people bleeded to death or bled to death. 
So the main mission now was to bring, law, bring emergency medical services closer to the scene and stopping bleeding earlier. The problem with that is that they're not, they don't have protective gear, they're not really trained to be in a hostile environment, so there was a lot of negotiation around that. But generally speaking, the, the, the whole concept was EMS now gets to stop bleeding and render treatment earlier. The real problem now is that that's all well and good, but for the first five-ish minutes or so, or maybe even more, in a hostile event, you're it. So the person who's going to stop bleeding is either you or the person beside you. So that became a call that no one should die from uncontrolled bleeding, and the citizens should be prepared, informed, empowered, and generally given a major attaboy if they get involved to stop bleeding for somebody they don't know. It's a good Samaritan kind of approach. That meant we had to develop a, a training program for the citizen. You only ha they only can give you about half an hour, 40 minutes. So we picked three things. Use your hands, use a hemostatic dressing, and use a tourniquet. And there's a training program, basic BCON, or bleeding control basic, which has a didactic phase, which is about 15-ish minutes or so. And then you demonstrate the skills to the person and have the person demonstrate it to you, to competence, and now they're good to go. Just three things. Use your hands, use a hemostatic dressing, use a tourniquet, and do it. And the other thing is that we asked the public if they would be interested in that, and 92% of the public said they would be interested in stopping bleeding from somebody they didn't know. They wanted to be taught how to do it, and they didn't want to do any harm. So that really was very encouraging to us, that the population of the United States felt this was a very worthy thing to do. So this is geared towards the law enforcement and also teaching the public. This is not a campaign geared towards teaching surgeons how to stop bleeding. What role can the surgeons take in helping to educate the public and get involved? Well, what a surgeon generally does is he's a leader in the, in the community. And that person is a medical leader in the community, so they have a lot of confidence in the community, whether the elected community, the governor, the mayor, the head of, you know, the secretary of this or that. They're well respected by those people. They're also respected by the hospital and the pre-hospital people and their patients. So they become an advocate for this. And we want bleeding control or hemorrhage control to be seen as the same as CPR. So you have CPR for heart attack, Heimlich for choking, stop the bleed for bleeding. And those things, all of them, were driven by medical experts and adopted by the public as a useful public good. And have had phenomenally good results. And we feel that literally no one should bleed to death from uncontrolled hemorrhage. Shouldn't happen. And we're engaging the public to achieve that. Those are all uh, ex excellent and lofty goals. At our hospital, we have trained uh, myself and then three of our um, staff, really, uh, two nurses and a nurse practitioner, to do stop the bleeding as a trainer. And then what we are in the process of doing right now is going out to our community 
we're starting with schools, we're starting with banks, we're starting with large buildings, any any areas that have been identified by our local law enforcement as potential targets, that's where we're starting. And then we're also going on to our agricultural community because that's where we have a lot of bleeding inju- uh, injuries in the rural community. If someone's listening to this podcast and they say, hey, that sounds great, I want to get involved, how could um, a surgeon or a medical student or a resident become a trainer for the Stop the Bleed campaign? Well, two things. One, first off, our goal is to inform. So we have a website, bleedingcontrol.org, where all the information is there and it's free and it's downloadable. So that's really just informing the public. We also have public service announcement spots, which the public is, oh, that's interesting. Then the education part comes in, and that's the beacon or bleeding control basic. And uh, again, on the website, there's going to be who, where, where geographically this happens and how you can sign up to become uh, a training site, both as an instructor, and then the instructor puts the training site on, and people can go to that site with a time to become trained. And that, that's, we now have 2,600 instructors in all 50 states, and I think over 10,000 people have been trained in the last three and a half months. So it's it's beginning to move. It's you know as we say, we're a grain of sand on the beach, and this is a big beach here. There are 250 million people to train, but you have to start somewhere. And there's a tremendous good feeling and enthusiasm for people who want to do this. Great. Well, thank you very much for spending time with me, and this is just an amazing project. You're welcome, and thank you for what you're doing. Thank you. I'm standing here with Dr. Pollock and Dr. Hunt. Both of them just finished our point counterpoint on field tourniquets and do they save lives. Thank you very much, gentlemen, for joining me for a quick chat afterwards. First thing I wanted to talk to is Dr. Pollock. If you are on the pro side of tourniquets saving lives, and we agree we should endorse our Stop the Bleed campaign, who do you think that we should be teaching? Well, I think we're already teaching our EMS personnel how to apply tourniquets and how to address extremity hemorrhage. And I think at this point in 2017, as opposed to maybe where we were 10 years ago, they're all very attuned to the need to address that very quickly and early on in the evaluation process. But police officers, I think, are are a great opportunity. I think one of the the lessons that we learned from Iraq and Afghanistan is that the bang for the buck, uh, pardon the phrase, came from from teaching people to apply tourniquets and to address extremity hemorrhage very, very early after the injuries occurred. And that meant in the field by the the injured warriors themselves and and by their their comrades and their buddies. And I think the the same thing can be true uh, in, in the civilian environment. A lot of these injuries where there's the potential to prevent exsanguinating hemorrhage uh, is a result of penetrating trauma and in many of those situations the police are there long before the EMS personnel. So teaching the police to become comfortable addressing extremity hemorrhage uh, I think has, has the greatest possibility of achieving benefit for the most number of people. Thank you very much. And Dr. Hunt, uh, you started off your presentation saying for 20 years we've been teaching don't do tourniquets. Now we've kind of come to the other side of that pendulum saying we should be using tourniquets. And you have a lot of experience both in your personal practice and at the national level. I was wondering if you could kind of summarize where tourniquets are going to fit into our uh, national conversation. Sure. Um, I think, as Dr. Pollack noted, uh, trying to get life-threatening 
bleeding interventions to the patient as soon as possible. And, and he talked about the police. They're going to get there faster in many instances. So that makes sense. Even the police at times, that's not going to be fast enough. It will be the person or who is standing or sitting next to you um, on a train or a, wherever um, in a school or like um, an agricultural accident that will save somebody's life just because of the time issue. So, um, you know, uh, we've really embarked on the Stop the Bleed uh, program to engage the general public in this. And we really uh, think that um, the general public's um, interest in being empowered to do something, not just stand by when somebody's bleeding to death. Um, we also feel that, um, you know, the numbers aren't there compared to some other issues um, uh, like cardiac arrest. Um, even the opioid overdose. The numbers aren't anywhere near that, but should be another life-saving skill, just like we have CPR as a life-saving skill, um, uh, life-threatening bleeding should be, uh, control should be a, a life-saving skill as well. So if I'm hearing you correctly, we're not having a debate about teaching stop the bleed instead of CPR or instead no, of no. having an AED available. We want to do this in conjunction to increase the number of lives saved by civilians. Absolutely. You, you said it exactly right. Uh, exactly right. It's not in place of. It's not in place of. It's additive and probably amplifies, uh, puts a spotlight on life-saving skills like CPR. So I think it's additive, not subtractive. Great. Thank you very much. I'm standing here with Dr. Dave Efron, who just finished uh, moderating a session. Three topics today. There should be a mandatory retirement age for clinicians, surgical rescue as a legitimate part of acute care surgery, and necrotizing fasciitis can be reliably diagnosed in the emergency department. Thank you for meeting with me, Dr. Efron. What I wanted to ask you about is could you please help explain to the audience what does surgical rescue mean? What is this term, and how does that get incorporated into our practice as surgeons? Carrie, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Um, surgical rescue is an interesting uh, concept uh, coming on the heels of the work from uh, Berkmeyer and Dimmick where you can identify that it's not the complication uh, that is associated with outcome but the ability of the institution or the caregivers to respond to the complication that uh, determines the outcome. We as acute care surgeons are unique. Not only do we take care of trauma patients, emergency and elective patients, but also the surgical critical care patients. I'll give you two examples in which case uh, you might see uh, the validity of the potential for rescue. Just take a patient that comes in uh, from the ED uh, with a perforated colon cancer um, who, say, has a, a low ejection fraction of 15% uh, and multiple comorbidities. That patient is most likely to live or die, uh, not only from the operative uh, ability, but for, from the perioperative care, including critical care. Uh, and I would argue that an acute care surgeon is probably the best person for the comprehensive care of that patient. Contrasted to a patient who comes in with a near-obstructing colon cancer, uh, who uh, may benefit from uh, a more advanced and practice technique of a one-stage resection, potential intraoperative washout, and primary anastomosis. And their morbidity and mortality is very much more dependent on the management of that operation, ideally even without a stoma. 
And I would say that in that situation, a patient may be best served with the colorectal expertise or with that with somebody who does that operation more frequently than we would. Let's say uh, one of those particular patients has a complication uh, and ends up in the ICU. When it's on the colorectal service, we as the ICU attendings are invited to the care of that patient and participate that. And we actually participate in the care of the patient. The only way that the colorectal surgeon is invited to the care of our patients is if we bring them to the table for help or if they uh, get to t tell us about things at M&M. So de facto, we are already participating in the care of the most complex patients and the patients that, by definition, may need rescue. I think it's very important to understand that, embrace that, and acknowledge that, and have that acknowledged. Uh, and I think that that is just two simple examples of what one might consider the definition or processes of surgical rescue. Great, thank you very much. I'm standing here with Dr. Sharon Henry. She just finished her point-counterpoint presentation. She and Kimberly Davis debated the topic, necrotizing fasciitis can be reliably diagnosed in the emergency department. Dr. Henry, I was wondering if you could summarize whether this debate has been solved. Can we reliably diagnose this in the emergency department? Well, thanks, Carrie. Thanks for asking for my opinion about this. Um, I don't think Dr. Davis and I were really that far apart when we began our discussion. I do think, you know, I, I believe what I said, which was that I think the diagnosis can't always reliably be made in the emergency department, and the place that it is reliably made is the operating room. I think that is the gold standard for making this, uh, this diagnosis. The pathognomonic findings are that nasty gray uh, fascia that you find, the loss of tissue plane integrity that you find in the operating room when you explore these patients. Other findings like subcute air, like skin necrosis are present, as you saw from the presentation, in less than 60% um, of patients who present with um, necrotizing so uh, soft tissue infections, only less than 60% of those patients will have at least one hard finding of necrotizing soft tissue infection. So that leaves a lot of different um, options as far as uh, studies that we can do to help uh, in, improve our diagnostic precision, all of which fail, uh, none of which has 100% negative predictive value. So the problem with the, this diagnosis is it's an uncommon diagnosis, so we don't see it every day unless you're in a, in a center like mine who happens to be lucky enough to see you know, at least one of these cases a day almost. Uh, so we get really, really familiar. But if you're like most people in the country, you see this once in a career, once a month, once a, twice a month, uh, twice a year, et cetera. You're not going to see it every day. So you may be able to diagnose that patient who has the hard findings, but the ones that don't have hard findings are the ones that are going to be a diagnostic challenge for you. Now, can you use laboratory tests? Yes, they help you, but again, there isn't a pathognomonic lab test, a laboratory finding that says, I have neck fash. A high white 
can come from a lot of different things. A low sodium can come from a lot of different things. A high uh, CRP can come from a lot of different things. So nothing's pathognomonic. And again, the negative predictive value from the laboratory risk indicator score is not um, high enough to allow us to say if the score is less than six, that patient doesn't have necrotizing fasciitis. Similarly, the CT findings of necrotizing soft tissue infection can also be misleading. I have operated on patients who have a CT that just looks like some fat stranding, and they have necrotizing soft tissue infection. So it, you don't have to see air. Get that out of your head. If you see air, that's, that helps. But not everybody with uh, um, NSTI has air in the soft tissues. So that is an important point not to get sucked into. When you can't figure it out, the best place to be is in the operating room. Now, there have been a few papers discussed um, doing this bedside local exploration and a frozen section biopsy to determine the diagnosis of necrotizing soft tissue infections. I got to say, this does not happen in Maryland. Uh, this isn't something our pathologists are not waiting up at 3 o'clock in the morning with their uh, microscopes primed and ready to examine tissue. Uh, so that's not, doing a frozen section is really not reliable, I don't think, in, in anybody's hands. Now, whether there is value in doing a local exploration, in the emergency department, I would say no. Um, will, can you get some information from a local exploration where you're trying to determine antibiotics to use by culturing uh, the tissue? For instance, if you're suspicious, you have a, a severe cellulitis, you're not convinced, uh, and, it, and you um, do a bit of an exploration, you get something to culture and you grow group A strep, at somebody, I would I would probably follow that with a larger um, exploration to to be sure they don't have a necrotizing soft tissue infection. But again, there's going to be a delay between when you get the culture and when you take that patient to the operating room. So again, in the op, in the ED, you're not that's not helping you so much. So I can't think of a reason we would do it better in the ED than the OR. It seems like all the things you just described that we talked about in the meeting today, the OR is the best place to be, better exposure. And if it is a necrotizing fasciitis, you can address it right there. And time is of the essence. Agree with you completely on that, Carrie. The other thing that I would say is that though the papers that describe doing this local exploration say you can do a, a one to three centimeter incision you're supposed to go down to the fashion, then do this so-called finger test where you test the integrity of the soft tissues above the layer of the deep fascia. I believe that it's impossible to appropriately, to be sure, to be confident that you've appropriately placed an incision in a patient who is in that category where you're not sure they have a necrotizing soft tissue infection, that you would be assured that you hit the, the sweet spot of where that deep infection might be. When I do an exploratory incision on a patient who I am unsure, when I take them to the operator, I'm not 100% convinced they have an NSTI, but I'm, I am convinced enough that I think they require exploration, they're getting a long cut. They're going to get a, a six, seven, eight centimeter incision. They're going to get a decent incision so that I know that I haven't missed 
the spot where the incision uh, that I haven't placed my incision in an incorrect place and have missed the infection because that has happened. And often there's a benefit of, if it's a complex cellulitis, sometimes simply opening it up improves the cellulitis as well. That is my bias. I can't prove that. Uh, I don't know that of any literature that says that or any evidence based to that, but that, that is definitely my clinical experience and my clinical bias. There are certain infections, particularly group A strep, that I think in many uh, instances improve more rapidly if they are opened. Well, Dr. Henry, thank you so much for spending some time with us, certainly a leader in the field when it comes to necrotizing soft tissue infections. Thank you, Gary. I'm sitting here with Bob Ixarani. We just finished up his point-counterpoint debate against Jose Diaz on the utility of rib fractures. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. Pleasure's mine. One of the things I found very interesting is you trained me, and you were very pro-rib plating, and you were asked to take the con against rib plating. I thought you did a really convincing job, so I'm curious. Are you just faking it, or are you reconsidering how you're going to use <laughs> rib fracture plating in your practice? Uh, yeah, I think it's a little bit of uh, the middle ground there. I, I don't think I was necessarily faking it, but I think with any operation you do, you really need to understand the pros and the cons, and you have to customize the operation to the patient. That's, that's really especially true for a novel, relatively novel procedure like rib fracture fixation, where you have to identify the patients and know the pros and cons to try to optimize outcome. Have you been enjoying the conference so far? Oh, yeah. This is an outstanding conference. I think anybody who is in their upper years of residency training, fellowship, maybe beginning years of attending um, status would really benefit from listening to not necessarily the likes of me, but much better speakers, much more notable speakers who can talk about the pros and cons at a much higher level. Um, these guys know where the holes are in the literature and where the controversies are and the, the discussions are readily applicable to, to the patients. And I want to give you an opportunity. You mentioned in your presentation talking about CWAS, the Chest Wall Injury Society, of which I just joined as well. Um, could you take a moment and tell our audience what is CWAS and how could it benefit an up-and-coming surgeon? Yeah, so uh, the Chest Wall Injury Society is a formal society that just got created this past uh, January, February, so literally three, four months ago. Um, it is a bunch of us who have a true vested interest in uh, management of chest wall injury. Um, you can go online and and join. Um, the intention of the society is first and foremost to create a robust database, national registry that we can put patients into to try to figure out who needs to be plated, who doesn't need to be plated, both initially in the acute care phase, but also subsequently. You know, many of these guys are discharged home and three months out, six months out, they're not doing very well. And the, the metric of alive at discharge is not, a, is not success. Uh, the intention of the CWIS group is to define indications for surgery and maybe take it one step further and start talking about different plating systems. And maybe one size doesn't fit all when it comes to the actual implant. So the society is truly young. It's three months in its, in its creation. Um, you'll see some really big names uh, as uh, its officers. And I would very strongly encourage anybody who's interested in chest wall injury to join. Could you also add a bit about the slack uh, texting portal that everyone on CWS is using. Yeah, so there's a uh, there's a uh, app called Slack S L A C K um, that uh, that is free. Uh, you can install the app, but invitation into the uh, I'm sorry, joining the group is by invitation only. Um, when you join CWS, you get an invite to join Slack, and Slack has really become a very nice 
really online uh, private blog for us to ask each other very in-depth questions. We'll routinely put up um, imaging, obviously de-identified, uh, asking, hey, I've got this patient with this particular issue, what do you guys think I should do? And you'll find some fascinating discussions, things like, I've got a third rib that's broken anteriorly, severely displaced, do I need to, what do I do about that? Um, Multi-segment uh, fractures of the sternum, how do I plate that? Do I need to plate that? You know, most recently there was one person who had a very severely fractured first rib, and the question was, you know, do you just resect it as if it's a thoracic outlet syndrome? Um, so, so some really good, um, oh, do you need to take a plate out? What if you, another blog was, I, I, I plated a kid who got kicked in the chest with, by a horse. Do I need to go and take that plate out? What will happen to the child as, as, as the child grows? So again, a really nice venue to have a great series of discussions with some notable notables in the field, really at your, at your convenience uh, by joining the society and using this um, app. That sounds like a, a great resource, and certainly this conference is also another great resource for uh, new things such as rib plating. Thank you so much for taking some time with me. Thank you. I'm standing here with Dr. Sarah Murphy. She just finished her point-counterpoint on echo-based resuscitation in the ICU is better than other monitors. Dr. Murphy took the pro, and uh, Dr. Lessauer took the con. Dr. Murphy, thank you for joining us. Could you give us a summary of your presentation? Absolutely. It'd be a pleasure. So today I got to talk about echo, which is one of my favorite topics, and my essential point about why echo is better than catheters is because it makes you a more engaged, interactive doctor. You have to walk in the room, you have to know the, you have to know the windows, you have to put the probe in the right place, and you have to know how to do the calculations. And if you do that, if you learn how to do the calculations and learn how to tell what the left ventricle is doing, if the EF is low, look at the right ventricle and see if you have right ventricular dysfunction. Um, and possibly get the VTI, which allows you to calculate out the stroke volume and the cardiac output. You can make really informed decisions about fluid versus inotrope versus vasopressor, or more often some combination of using all of those. So learning how to do echo and using echo makes you more able to tailor your treatment to the given patient in front of me, in front of you. I think even Dr. Lassar, even though he, he had a very convincing argument, he still had to relent and agree that he also agrees with you that echo is an excellent uh, tool that we can use for resuscitation, uh, fluid management. Uh, if uh, one of our listeners is interested in learning more about ECHO or becoming more proficient at using it, do you have any suggestions for how they could do that? I do. That is an uh, excellent question and a little bit of a hard one to answer. So I think that is a little bit like saying you want to learn laparoscopic surgery. You have to, you have to invest in it yourself, and then you have to come up with a plan, and the plan's going to involve chunking out a little bit of time, and everybody's overextended and super busy. Um, so they do offer courses. The SCCM, the SCCM offers a course. A course is probably a good place to start, um, and then you just have to start doing it. Um, and most likely there are people at wherever, whatever hospital you're in, either in the emergency room or in the critical care department, for sure in the echo lab, that know what they're doing and can help teach you. So you need to um, find a mentor where you're working and just start getting imaging done. There is also a lot more information than you would think available online, things like this podcast. Uh, ER doctors call it FOAM, free open access from education. So just online, you can search a lot of ultrasound and learn, teach it to yourself. Um, so I think that it's a lot of individual work and these courses can help. I think that's a great point. And when I trained with you last year, one of the things you said is do echoes on everybody. And it, it, it's kind of back to when we were medical students. I said do a lung exam on everybody so you start to understand what a normal lung sounds like. That way when you hear an abnormal lung, it makes sense to you on a stethoscope. I think echo's been similar. Do echoes on everybody that you have the opportunity to so you start understanding more and more and more 
cardiac function that way when you do have the patient that's really sick you can start to recognize abnormal easier that's an excellent idea everybody's busy and just carving out time to learn a new skill is hard um, and so finding time is i think maybe the hardest part of it all well it was a really great presentation i hope that echo uh, takes off in the future i'm sure that it will thank you for spending some time with me thank you very much I'm here with one of our panel moderators, uh, Dr. Danielle Pinieri, who is a fellow. She was the East Orient winner uh, earlier at the East Conference in January. Danielle, thank you so much for taking some time to talk to me. Oh, thank you. So if you could give the audience a, an understanding, how is it that uh, all of our other moderators and discussants are considered you know, experts in the field, and, and, and yet you're a fellow? How did you end up on the uh, Point-Counterpoint uh, Conference? Um, actually, I was asked to participate secondary to when, having won the Orient Award. It is apparently customary that the Orient Fellow winner participates in Point Counterpoint, and I know in the past it's been as a presentation as one of the uh, topics for Point Counterpoint, and this year Dr. Scalia asked us to do something a little different and to moderate the panel discussion for uh, kind of the future of trauma and critical care. It was a, it was a great uh, panel. We had uh, Dr. Fockery, Dr. Barry, Dr. McKillen, and Dr. Hunt uh, sat on the panel, and the panel was called The Future of the Critically Care Ill and Injured Patients. And if you would mind, could you give us some highlights from the panel discussion? Uh, so it was a really great discussion, actually. Um, like you said before, it was a lot of people who really are experts in the field, and so it's kind of fun to pick their brains a little bit about um, different topics and what the future looks like. Obviously, none of us know quite what the future is going to look like, but um, if you're going to get an opinion from anyone, those are some of the best people to get one from. Uh, specifically, we talked about a couple different things. We talked about the changing political climate and the fact that I guess really no one knows what that's going to look like for trauma and critical care just yet um, with everything that's been going on in Washington. Uh, we also talked about the care of our elderly patient population and how that's uh, been growing and becoming more and more a part of trauma care and how some places are trying to introduce geriatricians into practice more and more as part of our team or as a consulting service as they're available. And our last question, like our last topic, I guess, was about the future of kind of how technology is going to change trauma and specifically how self-driving cars may change the landscape of what we see and treat as trauma surgeons. And kind of the idea from the group was that we'll see what happens. There have been a lot of technological advances in the past that maybe didn't pan out the way we thought they would as far as safety, or they did pan out that way, but it took a while to get there. So it'll be interesting to kind of watch how those changes take place over the next several years. It was a really nice uh, discussion to, to listen to surgeons who kind of watched the past 30 years of uh, trauma mm -hmm. go by and then to try to predict what the next 30 years. If you're interested in reading Danielle's essay, go to the east.org uh, homepage. On there, there's a link to the annual scientific assembly. Within that page, there are the East Awards and Scholarships, and one of those is the East Orient Award. This is why I want a career in trauma and acute care surgery. Within there, you'll see Danielle's essay as well as all the essays that have won over the past eight years. It's a wonderful opportunity uh, for a resident or a fellow to submit an essay. You'll have the opportunity to present at the East Conference as well as uh, be one of the moderators or presenters at the Point Counterpoint uh, Conference in Baltimore next year. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the East Online Education Committee 
of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the EAST website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, network and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the East.